Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Heather Madden, Director of Advocacy Projects at the Independent Women's Voice and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. Today, I'm here with Hadley Heath-Manning, Director of Health Policy at the Independent Women's Forum. Hadley has written a policy-focused publication for IWS on the Veterans Health Administration, and today we're going to be discussing the VHA, how it came to be, its current challenges and potential solutions, and also how our experience with the VHA can inform our broader health policy debate. Hadley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Heather. So today, Hadley, as you know, the Veterans Health Administration, or the VHA, is responsible for meeting the needs of 8.3 million veterans each year. So first, can you tell us a little bit more about our country's history of caring for veterans, and more specifically, the history of the Veterans Health Administration? Yeah, the Veterans Health Administration has taken various forms and had different names over the course of our national history. But one really interesting thing I found, um, and this is on the Veterans Affairs website, if you want to look into their history, our history of caring for soldiers and veterans actually predates our existence as a country. So in Plymouth County, you know, you may recall Plymouth Rock from history class, uh, there's a record of a pilgrim law dating back as far as 1636, saying that the pilgrims in Plymouth County would support any soldiers who became disabled while protecting the colonists from Indians nearby. So uh, there's sort of this basic, I think, sense of obligation that we feel towards those uh, fellow men, fellow countrymen who protect us, um, that when they put their lives on the line, that we're going to, you know, sort of come together as a community or as a nation to provide for their health care needs. And so that's been going on since even before the United States was an independent nation. But the Veterans wow. Health Administration, yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting. The VHA um, today consists of about 150 medical centers, um, nearly 1,400 outpatient clinics, community living centers, vet centers, and um, domiciliary-type homes. Um, and the VHA employs approximately 53,000 healthcare practitioners and as you said, they care for more than 8.3 million vets each year. And it is a cabinet-level executive department, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, and we, when we talk about the VHA, we're talking about one of the three main components of the VA. So within the VA, uh, we have the Veterans Benefits Administration, um, which administers benefits like the Loan Guarantee Program that was part of the GI Bill. Um, and then we have the National Cemetery Administration, which does exactly what it sounds like they do. They care for cemeteries. And then finally, the VHA. So that's sort of the structure that we're looking at today. It's a cabinet-level executive department and has three main components, one of which is the VHA. Um, and that's, a, that's the main uh, process by which our veterans access health care. Wow, that's really interesting. Thank you for that background. You know, so often nowadays we hear some criticisms of the VHA, especially related to how veterans access their health care. Uh, this was a particularly big issue in 2014 when journalists discovered that the Phoenix VHA system was using unofficial waiting lists for care. 
Um, so Hadley, can you tell us a little bit more about that scandal and, and what it says about the challenges that are facing the VHA today? Right. So journalists initially broke this story out of Phoenix. And in and, and Phoenix, Arizona, there's a VHA system. Uh, it turned out that approximately 40 veterans had died, actually, while they were waiting for care on what some people call secret waiting lists. Um, the more official terminology is that these were, quote unquote, unofficial waiting lists or manipulated waiting lists. Um, and so obviously that's um, a, a heinous tragedy that, you know, took place in Phoenix. But when the government found out about this, they actually did some more research and they had um, the inspector general's office within Veterans Affairs. Uh, Congress put together an investigation and, and the White House put together an investigation. All of these investigations actually sort of blew the lid off and showed that this was not just a problem isolated to Phoenix, but this was affecting tens of thousands of veterans nationwide when it came to improper scheduling and, um, you know, sort of keeping um, this data about how long veterans wait for care uh, in, in, a, in, in a, a not transparent way and also in a way that was um, manipulated. So, in response to that, there's been some effort to continue monitoring what goes on at the VHA. Um, and unfortunately, today, we know from the Office of the Inspector General that even in spring of this year, 21 of 38 facilities that they studied were still using improper scheduling. And so um, when I say improper scheduling, that means that schedulers are entering the next available date as a veteran's desired date, thereby reflecting no wait time. And so we need to, you know, we need to keep better track oh, of, wow. of what yeah. the wait time actually is instead of putting in sort of a fake date instead of um, actually putting in what the next available date uh, would be. And so, uh, you know, that's an, an important thing to monitor because when we're talking about healthcare, waiting times can actually affect someone's health uh, in, a, in a very important way. Sure, especially if it's a life-threatening uh, condition. Um, but, you know, now, wait, wasn't there an effort, though, to, to address the problems in the VHA immediately following this scandal? There was, actually, and, and Congress actually passed a law, and President Obama signed a law uh, in 2014. And uh, this particular law um, instituted a choice program for, vet for veterans. And um, sometimes when we talk about solutions to um, the VHA and, and these waiting time problems, we talk about expanded choice. And so I think that this piece of legislation was uh, really had good intentions and I think it had good ideas in it. But unfortunately, sometimes um, what we put into law theoretically doesn't always come true in practice. And so this choice program um, has since been studied by a government commission called the Commission for Care. And in summer 2016, they released their report on that, and they showed that there were profound deficiencies in the way that the choice program was working. Basically, you have to live uh, more than 40 miles away from a VA facility, and you have to have waited for 30 days for care within the VA system before you can take advantage of the choice program. And not surprisingly, some of the bureaucracy surrounding the implementation of this program um, made it very difficult for veterans to actually use, and there seems to be some kind of um, you know, poor communication between private healthcare providers outside of the VA system and the veterans who need to use those um, choice practitioners for care. And so ultimately, it was a good idea, and it was um, something that I think had good intentions behind it. Um, but due to the way that the VA is functioning or is dysfunctional, maybe, um, the choice program hasn't brought about 
the needed change that, um, that lawmakers were hoping. And now this year, the problems at the VHA continue to be discussed. So Hadley, what is the latest on the performance of our Veterans Health Program? Well, I just mentioned that uh, Commission for Care, and that's really been the latest report in terms of, um, you know, how how things are going. And I should also mention that the the Choice Act that was put into place in 2014, uh, this particular piece of legislation also uh, increased spending in the VA, actually pumped billions of dollars um, in an effort to respond to that waitlist scandal in 2014. And so, from that perspective, the Commission on Care Report is particularly disappointing because we're spending money, we're making an effort, we're trying to implement this choice program, and yet we're not getting the results that we want to see for our veterans. And this is an issue that's of grave importance to voters. It consistently ranks at the top of voters' concerns when it comes to health care. We want to see health care access improved for our veterans And this was a real surprise to me, but in 2016, when Gallup asked the American people, you know, what kind of um, changes do you believe would help the VA or help the VHA, more than 90% of Americans said they believed that all veterans should have the ability to access a healthcare practitioner um, outside of VA facilities, any practitioner who accepts Medicare. And you know politics, Heather, like if you get more than 90% agreement on a particular issue, we're talking about something um, where the American people just have incredible consensus about reform. And so it seems like the reforms that were put into place in 2014 were intended to go in that direction, but didn't go far enough in structurally reforming the VA. Certainly, you know, anything that has over 90% support, you think it could, you know, get, um, be able to move forward pretty seamlessly. Um, there aren't many issues that I think that over 90% of the country uh, agree on. So, um, so in your, in your policy focus, um, you point out that there are broader lessons that we can apply to the health policy debate when we examine how the VHA is working or, or isn't working. Um, so can you explain that for us a little bit more? Sure. So uh, I think it's important when we study what's happening in the VHA to sort of look at our broader debate nationwide over health care resources and what's the best way to manage those resources. America in general, has, I believe, one of the best health care systems in the world when it comes to the quality of health care that people can receive. Here we have uh, some of the best cancer survival rates, um, and we have some of the shortest waiting times when we compare ourselves to other countries, especially for elective procedures like knee surgeries and hip surgeries and so on. So, um, you know, we, we can take a realistic picture of healthcare in the United States and say, man, we're doing a great job in terms of meeting the individual needs of our patients. But we do have some systemic problems, as I said, about resource allocation. And uh, in English, what I mean is, you know, how we're paying for healthcare. Our payment structure is, uh, is very messed up. And so uh, what can we learn from the VHA? Well, the VHA is absolutely a government-run healthcare system. And it's a good example of how a government-run healthcare system would work in the United States, because some people argue that we ought to have a system more like the VHA uh, for all citizens, so that the government might uh, control the facilities and employ the practitioners that everyone sees. That's a pretty extreme example. What's more likely to happen in the near term is a government-run health insurance program like Medicare for All or a single-payer health insurance program that the government might control. But all of these ideas are sort of in the same direction of increasing the government's role in our healthcare system. 
And instead, you know, I, what we're trying to do at the VHA in terms of some of the, the reform efforts is to actually make the VHA more like the private sector when it comes to healthcare, and to actually give veterans more choice and to allow more market competition in the way that their care is provided to them and the way that they access healthcare. And so the irony is that um, you know we're trying to change the VHA to make it more competitive and to make it more patient-centered. And then there are those who argue that we actually ought to make the rest of our healthcare system look more like the VHA. <laughs> and so we ought to be very careful going in that direction um, to examine you. Know, what is it that's actually causing some of the longer wait times? What is it that would cause you know, people within the VA system to manipulate the waiting times or to create unofficial waiting lists? Well, ultimately, that is uh, signifying a shortage. You know, a shortage in economic terms is when there's more demand for something than there is supply. There's always going to be demand for healthcare services. And we see in our, you know, our health sector more broadly, we do have a shortage of physicians. We often have shortages when it comes to the types of treatments that are available for people. Um, so we want to avoid that as much as possible. And the best way to deal with a shortage is to allow market competition and market forces to show us where resources can be best used. And so this is sort of the opposite approach of infusing more government control in our healthcare system and instead putting control in the hands of private actors, individuals, families, doctors, hospitals, insurance companies, and so forth. Um, because I believe, and, and I, I think many people believe, that we, as citizens, are better suited to understand what we need working together with our healthcare providers than a government panel or commission or program is capable of telling us what we need. So I think that that's really, you know, that may be a long answer to your question, but it is, you know, the Veterans Health Administration is an example of socialized medicine. And so uh, it suffers from the same symptoms that many other socialized medical systems in the world suffer from. And that is, you know, a shortage of availability and access to the care that people need in a timely manner. And again, when we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about a matter of life and death. And so if we want to provide the, the best quality care at the best value to the most number of people, then we need to get away from a government-centric model and put the patient back at the center. Right, especially when it comes to our veterans who, who put their lives on the line for us. Um, so my final thing that I want to ask you about, Hadley, so this conversation about socialized health care and the poor service for our veterans, it's uh, kind of depressing and, and discouraging. So, so I'm wondering, can you give us something positive related to this news? Um, is there any hope that the VHA will get better? I think there is hope. And I think, you know, it's interesting what you're getting at, Heather. It's a sad irony that our most revered citizens, our veterans, are actually the ones stuck in a second-rate program. You know, even if you look at Medicare, Medicaid, uh, those are government-run health insurance programs. But even those patients, if they're senior citizens or low-income people, even they have more choice when it comes to which practitioners they see than our veterans. And so it seems particularly unfair uh, that the people who have done the most, arguably, for our national security and for our country, that they would get the least when it comes to what our healthcare system has to provide. Right. And so, um, yeah. if, if I can try to end on a positive note, I know that there are efforts underway. You know, first of all, I mentioned the Gallup poll, and I think it's, it's, um, it should be encouraging to us that so many of our fellow Americans are on the same page with us about this, that they understand that more choice would be better for our veterans, um, opening the doors to veterans outside of the VA facilities and in private sector uh, health care providers and, and health facilities would be a good first step. 
And there are people within the halls of Congress who recognize that this should be a priority, too. Um, so there is a legislative proposal that's actually supported by Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers in the U.S. House, uh, and it's called the Caring for Our Heroes in the 21st Century Act. So in addition to sort of expanding um, the choice options for veterans and hopefully um, designing those choice programs in a way that works more efficiently and uh, serves veterans better than the last effort to create a choice program, this piece of legislation, um, it's, it's currently called a legislative proposal. It's not in, in legislative, um, it's not been written like legislation yet, but it is a proposal that would also um, add other reforms within the VA to ensure greater accountability. And that's something that certainly, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in the public sector or the private sector, there needs to be accountability so that when someone is making a bad decision or if someone is being, um, you know, not transparent with data or manipulating the data, that there needs to be some kind of accountability for that. So I would encourage people to find out more about that um, legislative proposal. Again, it's called Caring for Our Heroes in the 21st Century Act. And um, I think it's just a common sense step in the right direction that would sort of um, work against the entrenched bureaucracy at the VA and allow our veterans to, um, again, have greater choice and, and be able to step outside of uh, what today seems to be a restrictive system that's not serving them very well. Absolutely. I think that we can all agree that that greater accountability within, within the VA would be a, a positive first step in, in the right direction. Okay, this has been another edition of IWF's Working for Women podcast. Thank you so much, Hadley, for joining us and for being our guest today. To our listeners, if you are interested, you can find the policy-focused publication we've been discussing today at IWF.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.